Welcome to On San Francisco, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making news in the city by the bay. We're launching the third annual San Francisco Homeless Project to look at the facts behind one of the city's most intractable, frustrating, and confusing problems. I'm here with Jeff Kaczynski, the director of the city's Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. A few things you need to know. We recorded this in the department's drab, depressing office, a giant room filled with cubicles on Mission Street. We recorded it the day after the election, before it was determined that London Breed beat Mark Leno to become San Francisco's new mayor. And sitting quietly on the side, well, quiet until the end of this podcast, is Randy Quesada, the department's spokesman who tried to help out his boss in our lightning round that went a little off the rails. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to see your lovely new office. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Um, You've been head of the city's first Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for close to two years now. I would think it's one of the toughest jobs at City Hall. How would you say it's gone so far? I think things are going well, uh, a little bit uh, more slowly than I wished, but you know, we are implementing the strategies that we laid out in our framework document that we spent almost a year developing, uh, learning from other communities uh, how to more effectively reduce homelessness, and I think we're putting the infrastructure in place to do that. I also think it's important to note that uh, where most cities uh, around the West Coast saw double-digit increases in homelessness, California saw a 14% increase in homelessness, we've seen a slight decrease in homelessness, and I think that's a testament to the work that we've done so far, but that's not to say I think the conditions on the streets are okay or the number of homeless people uh, in our community is okay. There's a lot more work to do, but I think we are moving in the right direction. Do you think that San Francisco has a crisis when it comes to homelessness, and would there be any benefit to the next mayor actually declaring a crisis? I think it's absolutely a crisis. It's certainly a crisis for each individual who's on the street. They are experiencing a crisis. I think that if we were to declare a state of emergency in the city, it would be appropriate to do so, but I think there needs to be uh, changes behind that uh, declaration of emergency, like speeding up procurement processes, making it easier to cite shelters and permanent supportive housing, uh, and to just provide some administrative relief to the work that we do so that we can do things faster and, and more effectively. Would that help, say, um, open navigation centers quicker? Would it basically cut some of the red tape? Because I know that takes a lot longer than you wish it would sometimes. Yes, absolutely. We're currently operating under a one-year declaration of a shelter emergency that was passed by the Board of Supervisors in February. Uh, That has been very helpful in terms of speeding up uh, our ability to open nav centers, and I think we're doing so now in in probably record time, Uh, but that expires in February, and I think it's worth looking at that and maybe other uh, changes that we can make that will allow us to be a little bit more agile in how we uh, deploy our resources to address homelessness. Could it be akin to if we um, experience an earthquake and, of course, we would rapidly house people who need it, could we operate under the same sort of framework now with homelessness? I believe that's exactly right and that we should be. If there was an earthquake, we wouldn't spend six months trying to figure out how to deploy resources in order to pop up a shelter. Uh, It would just get done. We'd pick a vendor and we would do it, and I think that... Uh, we should find ways to be able to move money out the door more quickly uh, when we're, we're trying to address this problem. 
San Franciscans don't understand why City Hall spends more than $300 million a year on homelessness and supportive housing, and yet there aren't a lot of results to show for it, at least on the streets when people are walking around. How do you explain to constituents um, why I know you're spending so much time and effort on this problem, we're also spending a lot of money, and why the situation on the streets doesn't seem to be getting better? Well, I agree that we are spending a lot of money. Our department spends about $250 million a year. Uh, I think it's important to note that two-thirds of that goes to people who used to be homeless. So we're providing and maintaining housing for almost nine, or over 9,000 people who used to be homeless. Uh, so uh, when we you know, look at the numbers that we're spending, I think it's important to make that. And other communities, they don't count that necessarily as part of their homelessness budget. They count that as part of their housing budget, but it lives in our, our world. So I don't think we're spending as much as people uh, believe that we are. Uh, however, I strongly believe that uh, whereas San Francisco has these amazing model programs and these phenomenal nonprofit organizations, the city for many, many years did not have a system uh, in place. We had 15 different databases, uh, programs were run out of four different departments. There, there's never been, I believe since Art Agnos was mayor, a single strategy for addressing all homelessness. There were all these chronic homelessness, family homelessness, youth homelessness plans, planned by the local homeless coordinating board, planned by a different department. Now we've got one strategy, we're moving towards one database, we have uh, single uh, clear goals as to what we're trying to achieve and I think that's over time is going to make a difference but I I don't disagree that um, we need to do better with the funds that we have and that's I think partly why Marilee created our department and that's the direction we're moving in and we are making progress we're much more slowly than I hoped uh, but we are making progress and I believe in a year or so we're gonna have much, much better systems in place that will allow us to use that $300 million uh, much more effectively. And I think that's what's going to drive change. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the strategic framework, I know that that was an idea of yours from the very beginning as well as the one data system. Can you explain where each of those are in reality? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't want to say that that was my idea. That was okay. the department's uh, collective ideas. And I also think that I think in 2005, 2006, Kevin Fagan quoted me uh, saying the city really needs to move towards a coordinated data system and a coordinated entry model. And uh, when I was working at a nonprofit organization, and you know, 10 years later, I get to start working <laughs> on it. So this has been, I think, the field has been moving in this direction for a long time. Slowly. Yes. Uh, slowly in San Francisco, uh, much faster in other places. Houston, which I think is just a model city for us to look at, you know, reduced homelessness by almost 75% in a seven-year period of time. Wow. A hallmark of that was moving towards a single coordinated system, which is a main focus of our strategic framework. Uh, where we're at now is that the one system, as we call it, uh, is, exists. It's up and running. Uh, it had, we've shut down a number of different data systems. Um, I think three have been shut down and we're in the process of merging the other 12 into the system. Uh, there are, I don't know exactly how many records in the system, but well over 5,000. Um, and we have got the family system uh, more or less captured within the one system and operating under a coordinated entry model. We are about to start migrating the adult system uh, and then and then the youth system. So uh, again, it's moved a little bit more slowly than we want. We are asking a, a lot of our software vendor uh, to create really a, a world-class system and to redesign a lot of the product that we purchased. Um, but uh, we're getting there, and I think it'll be fully up and running, I'd say, within a, within a year. 
are you seeing any um, practical change using that system so far? Any people that are whose data is in there, um, are you able to help them quicker than you used to be? Or? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the practical, uh, very, very practical on the ground situations is I may get a phone call from a police officer or another department saying, I've got so-and-so here right now um, and they need help. Um, I can log on to the system and look that person up and actually almost every time I've done it, that person is in our system, find out who their case manager is and then you know help address that person's problem. Oh, this person's staying at such and such shelter or this person has a case manager on the hot team. So that's been very helpful, but I think also uh, and just as important is we're now able to look at like, are we achieving our goals for placing families into rapid rehousing and I can sort of click on a button and get that information and say oh no we're way behind where we should be what's the problem let's try to fix it uh, I think that there's a lot of applications to this system that will get more and more impactful as we get more and more records uh, into the system but we still have a long way to go but absolutely seeing uh, seeing progress one of the areas where we're making progress is, um, I think most notable, is one of our goals is to not have unsheltered families uh, in San Francisco. Um, and so what we're able to do now is to prioritize who gets access to family shelter. We start with somebody who's literally sleeping outdoors or literally sleeping uh, in their car. And the last that I checked, we have fewer than 20 families uh, which is down significantly from where it was uh, even a year ago. Do you know how high it was at one point? I don't recall off the top of my head, but I think it was about 40, and I'm, uh -huh. I think we've cut, cut it in half. half. Cool. This is sort of a real practical question, but I hear it all the time from San Franciscans who pass people on the sidewalk who are just sprawled out, laying down, and you can't always tell whether they're passed out drunk or high or asleep or possibly even dead and I think we've become so immune to seeing this that most of us just keep walking but what is the right response? If you are worried about somebody's health and you're not sure if uh, they're passed out or just asleep you should call 911. Let's not take a chance with people's uh, with their lives and with their health and their safety. Um, if you see somebody who's you know sitting up and they're they seem okay but you know they're saying that they would like assistance uh, first of all, thank you for stopping and asking that person, and then call 311 and let them know, and then uh, we'll send the hot team out uh, in, those, in those situations. Prop D, to build more housing and pay for homeless services on the ballot on election day failed. Um, how will this affect your plans going forward? Yeah, of course we're very disappointed uh, that it failed. Uh, we had the same situation last year with J&K failing. However, we managed to uh, still expand our budget uh, by rebalancing and what's going to measure D is going to leave a significant gap, um, not so much just in funding, but we were hoping to open up a transition-aged youth navigation center, um, more rapid rehousing for adults in transition-aged youth, and then $4 million dollars. Um, which would be roughly 120 uh, rental subsidies for chronically homeless adults through what we call a flexible housing subsidy pool. Uh, now that stuff is not funded and I'm hopeful that the Board of Supervisors and or the new mayor will help work with us to find ways to identify sources of funding because whereas I do think we need to use our funds better, uh, that doesn't mean we also need to make our the pie bigger and that we need more we still need more resources and mm -hmm. sometimes these things are seen as mutually exclusive like 
some people just want to keep throwing money at the problem and mm -hmm. that's the answer and some people don't want to suspend anymore I believe we need uh, to spend some more money on very targeted resources not just on the newest shiny object or you know trend of the week but mm -hmm. on things that we know are going to make a difference based on our own analysis and measure D was very much that it was very well thought out in terms of what was going to be funded and we now are going to have to find a way to fund those if we want to see homelessness continue to decrease in the city how much money does that mean that you don't have in your budget Unfortunately, that's not an easy question to answer. The city's budgeting process is, is pretty complex. So rather than talking about fiscal year 18, 19, or 19, 20, I think long term, uh, what we're not going to have is, unless we find a way to fund this, is 350 more permanent supportive housing subsidies, uh, about 100 rapid rehousing slots, and um, some new navigation centers, especially a Tay Navigation Center. And I think all of those things are, are of our highest priority, and I hope that we find a way to fund it. Uh, your current boss, Mark Farrell, has made a lot of headlines um, on these issues in his short time in Room 200, including directing you to clear 10 encampments uh, in the mission. Can you tell me about how that came to be and whether you agreed with it? Um, it's been a controversial move. Yes, um, and I think that it also has been slightly uh, misrepresented. Um, so in August of 2016, we started an encampment resolution team. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, since we started that team, we've helped resolve 30 encampments that had 20 or more people in them, and uh, about 1,300 people uh, were were touched by that. About 800 of them approximately accepted shelter uh, and safe placements. The Mission District um, was a, a parallel effort. Uh, there were five big encampments in the Mission District uh, that we resolved, but also we were really focused on that neighborhood in partnership with, um, with Hillary Ronan's office and with a goal of getting, you know, having no tents in the Mission or, or dramatically reducing the number of tents. So there was no sudden, like, go sweep tents in the Mission uh, on, on April 25th. Uh, it was more that we had done 10 months worth of work and we were down to, it's hard to know, it's 80 to 100 tents um, uh, left in a, mostly north of 16th Street and we wanted to finish that effort and we had strong support from Mayor Farrell to do that uh, work. He you know, really wanted us to continue to expand on the HSOC model, the Healthy Streets Operations Center um, collaboration with the Department of Emergency Management and a bunch of city departments trying to work better together. So I don't think this was like a sudden sweep or suddenly clear the tents. It was more like, hey, time to finish the job that you started 10 months ago. Okay. Uh, and we did it, um, and it was a very well-planned uh, effort. It wasn't like we woke up one day and showed up and, and asked 100 people to move. Right. It seems like there's a lot of confusion at the San Francisco Police Department about what their role is. I've heard from a number of residents who call to complain about something that's definitely criminal behavior happening outside their front door, and the police department comes um, and says there's nothing they can do about it. What do you think is the right role for law enforcement when it comes to dealing with um, homeless encampments, bicycle chop shops, and other things that come along with um, living on the streets? Sure. Um, well. Bicycle ch chop shops, meth labs, human trafficking, drug dealing uh, that all may occur or uh, seem to occur around encampments, those are, those are criminal activities and they need to be addressed with, by the police. It's not 
the homeless outreach team's job or my staff's job to try to enforce laws. Our job is to try to assist as many homeless people as we possibly can. So I think um, that's important to note, but I also think that it's important to note that uh, the police play a role um, in addressing homelessness, but not as the primary or first responder. Our, our, our hope and what we're trying to move to is that nobody is asked to move from somewhere without first being offered services or a place to go. Uh, and if people don't want to accept those services or the place that we're offering them to go, uh, then I think we need the police to enforce the relevant laws. But I think everybody, most everybody in the city agrees, and I know the police agree, that that's not the primary mission of the police and that's not the outcome that we want to have happen. What we want is people to accept offer of services and shelter um, and generally we're seeing about two-thirds of the people that we make offers to um, accept what we're offering mm -hmm. and sometimes... Immediately or over time? Both. Uh -huh. I mean but I think when we look at but I don't think just like one single offer is especially in, in a big encampment is, is enough. Sometimes it takes you know, you have to build trust with people. Some of these, you know, folks may be suffering from a severe mental illness. Some have maybe had a bad experience in a shelter or are just very reluctant to engage for whatever reason. And you have to build trust. You know, if somebody came up and offered me something on the street that I didn't know, I might be like, you know, who are you? Go away. Like, why are you offering me a sandwich? Why are you, you know, I don't know who you are. Um, that's a normal reaction. Yeah. So. So the, this work takes time and it's really, you know, a lot of this is just trying to find a balance between, you know, being compassionate and helping as many people as we can, but also understanding that there are, you know, laws in the city and all of us need to follow them, whether we're housed or unhoused. And uh, when people refuse to follow the laws, then, then the police come in. But I, I do think it's at the very end of a process, not, it's not how we, not how we want to lead. But, but do you think there's too much tolerance right now for bad behavior on the streets and sidewalks? I think that that's a hard question to answer. But in general, I don't think any more there is. I mean, I think that we have moved to this model with the Healthy Streets Operations Center. And it's certainly not perfect yet, and it's not functioning uh, citywide. But I think that what we need to do again is say hey here's some services here's a place for you to go and then when people refuse then we need to then law enforcement needs to to take uh, a role in this and i don't think we've had that kind of intentional approach towards addressing behavior out on the street so it's i think almost like too early to tell to mm -hmm. to answer that question i think what we were doing before was absolutely not working um, and I think what we're doing now is starting to work. And again, yeah. it's lead with services, follow up with enforcement when needed. But policing isn't the appropriate response uh, to poverty. Yeah. Um, and I don't think anybody believe in San Francisco or many people in San Francisco uh, believe that it is. I think it's a matter of addressing behaviors that people are engaging in, um, not punishing them for being poor, but saying, hey, you can't block a sidewalk or, you know, you can't poo on the street. Here's a resource center where you can go to the bathroom. And of course, you can't break into somebody's car. That's against the law. Um, and 
And it, again, it's just trying to find this balance between being compassionate, but not having people think like think they can do whatever they want on the streets. You know, put a tent under somebody's window and be up all night making noise and keeping them up when they have to go to work the next day. Right. Um, and we shouldn't um, have to accept that. But in order to help mitigate uh, these problems, we also need to add more housing and shelter. I mean, we we have added about 540 more shelter beds during the past two years, or we will have added 540, um, which is great. That's a during 20, the past two years. Yeah, it's a 25% increase in our shelter capacity in the past two years. Um, I, but I think we still probably need, not probably, I think we need more so that when we tell somebody, hey, you know, you can't be here doing this, here's a place for you to go, like we need more places for people to go in order for this to work mm-hmm. uh, as effectively as it should. It, I might be wrong on this, so I'm sure you'll correct me if I am, but it seems like the um, attention is really on permanent supportive housing and navigation centers and that the more traditional shelters are just sort of being left as is and not improved in order to provide more beds or um, make them easier places to be, such as being able to bring your partner or your belongings or your pets. Um, how come there hasn't really been a move to improve those traditional shelters? Well. I think that there has been some moves to improve those shelters. We've added mostly in terms of providing medical and behavioral health staff um, at the shelters. That's what we heard is the the biggest need. So we've got a medical team and a behavioral health team that work, um, you know, at the shelters. I think that's important. Some of them, the hours have expanded. So we've been making incremental change. But at the end of the day, um, and and I think they all should be. like navigation centers. Navigation centers to me are really just shelters as they should be. It doesn't seem that hard to change them. So how come they haven't been? Oh, it's really hard to change them. Yes, it's very hard to change them. The, well, I'll just give you an example. A navigation center costs about $100 per person per night to operate. That's twice as much as a, one of the larger shelters. Wow. So yeah, wow is correct. Why is it so expensive? It's it's also because, well, first of all, there's an economies of scale issue, right? I mean, people navigate, one of the reasons navigation centers work better is because they're smaller, right? So you lose the economies of scale of having a, it's cheaper to run a 400 bed facility than a 100 bed facility. Some of the things are kind of, you know, security at the front, whether usually there's just one security guard, whether it's 400 people coming and going or 100 people coming or going and and costs like that that just make it more expensive to operate a smaller shelter and also the the case manager uh, to client ratio at a navigation center um, is much more favorable uh, you know so we there's just m- more uh, case managers per client mm-hmm. um, so yeah much more expensive all of these things end up being balancing acts and and, and trade-offs that we have to make. Do we want to add more beds into the system that desperately needs more beds, or do we want to invest a lot of money and almost double? I mean, it would it would probably almost double the cost of a shelter to, to operate it like a navigation center. And the problem is when you don't have enough housing exits, what's the, you know, the value of investing, you know, so much money into a shelter system when it's going to end up being a cul-de-sac for somebody because yeah. there's nowhere for them to exit to. I should also point out navigation centers cost um, just a little bit more per bed than permanent supportive housing. So mm-hmm. we need to be smart about how we make our investments. I think we do need some, I think we need to look at some kind of hybrid model of a 
low barrier to entry shelter that doesn't have the same services as navigation centers and maybe are a little bit bigger but have some of the features that have made them popular and more effective or more more welcoming to people to to want to come in and i think that's really what we need to look at next is is some kind of hybrid model because we can't keep every dollar that we spend on a temporary shelter uh, certainly helps with street homelessness but it's another dollar that we spend to have the same number of homeless people in the city. And I, I want to see us reduce the overall numbers of homeless people. So we've got to find a, the, right, the right balance. The more people you get off the streets, and I know you get many off every week, but the more just come. And um, do you think San Francisco is too welcoming? Is it true we're a magnet to homeless people from other parts of the country? And if so, is there anything we can really do about that? I'll just share the facts I, rather than make a, a value judgment about whether we are or aren't a magnet. I mean, I don't, I don't think so, but there's some important facts that we should all know as San Franciscans. One is that every week, uh, the staff in this building we're sitting in um, and our nonprofit partners, we help about 50 people every week exit homelessness, which is great. We should all be proud of that. I mean, I am get pictures of people moving into housing or getting on a bus every day that you know keep me going, keep all of us going. But I also know that the same week, 150 newly homeless people are going to be in the city. So now not all those people are going to stay, obviously. Uh, the majority of them will, will either resolve homelessness themselves or they will leave the city. But, but we know that that's pretty much the, the situation. That's and we, 150, including residents who become homeless, as correct. well as people coming from outside. Yes, and we, and we know that of that 150, we're going to say roughly 50 of them, uh, maybe a little bit less, came from somewhere else. So, and that's just a fact. Uh, I also will say it's a fact that the 30% you know, rate of homeless people uh, who show up in San Francisco without a home is almost twice as much as every county around us. So, you know, we do have a higher um, inflow of out-of-county homeless people uh, than the counties around us. And I think it's also important to note that we have 24% of the Bay Area's homeless population, but we have about 45% of the permanent supportive housing and nearly a third of the shelter beds. So this is an issue we have to address. And one of the ways we're trying to address it is uh, we've convened a regional meeting of uh, five of the Bay Area counties uh, to try to coordinate our efforts better, advocate um, look at some of these issues around disparities and services and try to address them. But the other thing is that coordinated entry, the system that we were talking about earlier, really prioritizes the sickest and the longest term homeless people uh, into our services that we have in the city. Um, and uh, really what was happening before, like when I started, you know, there was this like set up a tent somewhere um, near 1950 Mission Navigation Center, get into that navigation center. Um, even if you've been there for two days or you've been in the city for 20 years, you know, you, you're in the right place. You go into that nav center. And then once you're in that nav center, everybody in the nav center and the desire to make them be successful had access to housing. And I personally don't believe that it's fair that somebody who shows up, you know, a month or so ago gets to jump into the front of the queue mm -hmm. when other people are struggling on the streets for many years. And that's a big change in the dynamic that we're, uh, in the system that we're working on. And, you know, it's met some resistance. It's met a lot of resistance. Really? We changed. Makes sense. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I think that it makes sense. And so does the National Alliance on Homelessness and the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. And 
um, many, many other people who've been working in this field for a long time, but we're fundamentally changing the way the system works. Whereas before, you know, you get into an app center, you get into housing, or you get on 15 different lists and you know how to work the system and you're checking in a lot, you know, it's almost like a, a talent competition, <laughs> um, rather than saying, hey, get interviewed once by a, by a staff member, understand what your needs are, and that there are no waiting lists, but we're gonna match people to the right intervention. Mm -hmm. And somebody who's been here for a month or so, we can say, hey, we can offer you temporary shelter, we can offer you a bus ticket home, we can maybe offer you a three or four month rent subsidy in connection to a job training program, but we've got all these other folks who have been homeless for a long time who are really sick, and we need to put those folks into housing first. And frankly, ma'am or sir, you don't wanna be eligible for our permanent mm. supportive housing because that means you've gotten really sick mm -hmm. and we don't want that to happen. So yes. how do we how do we find a way to problem solve with you to get you back into a, a safe place? I mean, and that's whether people come from some other county or some other country, I mean, it doesn't really matter. The in, you know, we can't, we're not going to change how people behave and we can't restrict and should not ever restrict how people move or where mm -hmm. they decide to go. But what we can do is use our resources in a way uh, that is going to achieve specific goals mm -hmm. and that prioritizes um, people based on how long they've been in the city, et cetera, because the bottom line is we do invest a lot in this and we can't solve the Bay Area's homeless crisis. Yeah. We can't solve California's homeless crisis. Let's focus on solving San Francisco's homeless crisis and be smart about how we, we do it. I, in some ways, as a human being, citizen of the world, it breaks my heart that that's the reality that we all have to live in. But until the U.S. decides housing is a right, um, just like public education is a right, uh, we're, we're going to struggle with this. And, and we as San Franciscans, you know, need to do as much as we possibly can, but there, there are limits. And that's a big part of my job is trying to figure out how to help as many people as possible. And to like the one moral responsibility that I hope everybody agrees with, whether you think people have a right to housing or not. And I think people do, but not everybody agrees. But can we all agree that we have a responsibility to tell homeless people the truth and to yeah. not say, go get on this waiting list and then not finish the sentence with, and it's gonna take 10 years before you ever get into the queue because we're not giving people full information to make good decisions. And we also catastrophize everybody and assume, oh, if we, the system, don't help them, they're not gonna be able to help themselves. Um, and I think that the messaging needs to change. And it's gonna take time, but I'm already seeing like an impact on this. And our goal is that eventually, before anybody touches our service system, we have what we call the problem-solving discussion with them, which is how do we divert you out of the system before you even enter a shelter, before you even get into permanent supportive housing? How can we just give you some assistance, one-time assistance to get you back on your feet and housed again? Great, well that's an excellent segue to move out of the serious questions and into our fun lightning round. Oh man, you're not gonna ask me anything about the new mayor? I will, in the lightning round. Oh, yes. can I ask a question for you? <laughs> or can I give you an answer of a question you haven't asked yet? Sure. Okay, so I assumed that Heather Knight was going to ask me, well, what do you, what do you, who do you think the new mayor should be? Or what do you think about the new mayor? Um, and I will, I just wanna say that, you know, I think uh, I have read carefully both uh, London Breed and Mark Leno's homeless plans, and the one thing that has jumped out at me, uh, and, the, and, and I compared them to our strategic framework, is that everybody agrees we need more housing. 
uh, and the rest of it is somewhat nuanced. And everybody agrees we need more housing, and all the mayoral candidates signed the Tipping Point Pledge uh, that you may have seen, where yeah. there's a thousand new homes during their first year in office. Uh, and I believe uh, both uh, London Breed and Mark Leno um, are bought into that idea. They signed that pledge, so clearly they are. And I think the out of the gate, I hope that regardless of who the mayor is, we're going to figure out how to add those thousand exits. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, we can't just keep building expensive navigation centers. We have to find ways for people to exit homelessness. And that's, um, and I'm, I'm glad that both of the candidates um, uh, who are still remaining in contention for the job um, have focused on that in their, in their plans. Well, I will jump straight to one of my last questions in the lightning round, and then we'll go backwards. Who did you vote for for mayor? I'm not telling. <laughs> That's what I thought you would say. Okay, back to the real first question. What is your favorite place to get a burrito in San Francisco? Right now, it's the um, burrito, uh, the food truck down at like Mission and South Van Ness. It's in between our offices and the offices of the Human Services Agency, ah. and I travel back and forth <laughs> all the time, and they're super nice there, and they're good burritos. Cool. Uh, what is your favorite movie ever filmed in San Francisco? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Randy's running it down the answer for me. I'm going to pass on that one. I'll think to think about it for a moment. Does that say Planet of the Apes? No, The Rock. <laughs> the Rock. The Rock. Mayor Farrell said The Rock. So. I'm not going to answer that question. Okay. That's too controversial. <laughs> Ask me the, about voting for mayor again. <laughs> you probably need a stiff drink on a regular basis working in this job. What is your favorite place to get one? Oh man, and again, this is so like, what's between, like the, I don't even know the name of it, the the bar between here and the Navigation Center um, on 16th Street, this is what my life has become, um, it's a, it's a, they have, it's, what's the name of that place? There are several. Though it's, it has a lot of different kinds of beers. Um, is it, it's not Beer Works. City Beer? No, no. it's right at, like, it's on Mission and Division. They have a lot of beer. It's right next door to that um, music venue. I can't remember anything right now. Is it like a 13th or 12th Street in Mission? It's great beer. I used to go there all the time with my my colleague Brian Quinn, who who passed away Aww. recently. Um, but yeah, it's it's and sometimes I walk home uh, from from work, so it's like on the way. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, you probably don't have very many of these um, right now, but what is your favorite way to spend a free day? <laughs> <laughs> Laughing. <laughs> Sleeping. <laughs> True answer. <laughs> okay. And last, you won't well, say... My life has really gotten boring and <laughs> very focused on my job, but that's okay. Um, last question. You won't say who you want to be the next mayor, but do you want to keep this job under the next mayor? I want to keep this job uh, as long as there's alignment in City Hall around the strategic framework that we've laid out. I'm very much bought into that work. And as long as I'm being effective and moving that strategic framework forward, I absolutely uh, want to stay in the job. But you know, it's going to be up to the new mayor. They may have their own vision or direction that they want to go in. Um, but I will uh, serve uh, the city and homeless people in the city for, for as long as I'm allowed. Great. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me today. It was fun. Thank you. 
This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is San Francisco by Goss Prom, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by Dominic Fracasa and Fernando Diaz. For more City Hall coverage, you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Fracasa and me at HNightSF. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. <laughs>